Hello and welcome to the Christianese Podcast, episode number six. What is an evangelical? We've come to the end of an exhausting election cycle. And I don't know if it was the fact that I was more involved this year than I ever have been with the election, or the fact that the news covered every single disparaging point of either candidate, but this election seemed extremely divisive. The disparity between your side and my side was stark. There wasn't a lot of room for people in the middle. There was really one big way that the news referred to the majority of the church. Donald Trump is the darling of the evangelicals. Strong support from evangelicals. He won evangelicals in South Carolina. He won evangelicals in Nevada. The evangelicals are facing what he calls a real crisis. Evangelical. But the way they used it felt divorced from where I was. And so I, like a lot of other Christians, started to wonder, what does it mean to be an evangelical? Is it a kind of church? Is it a political constituency? Is that even a relevant term anymore? Typically, I'll start these podcasts by going back to the theological roots of a term. But evangelical is such a cultural term that we need to trace the cultural roots of the evangelical movement. The American evangelical movement really began after World War II, partially because the word fundamentalist had become confused. Before World War II, a fundamentalist was somebody who was committed to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. The authority of scripture, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the second coming, those sorts of things. If you held to those, you were a fundamentalist. But by the middle of the 20th century, a fundamentalist was somebody who fought over issues that really didn't matter. Issues that weren't fundamental, like which Bible translation was the best and should be used in church services. Now that's a good debate to have, but it's not an issue that should define the church. Out of that confusion came evangelicals, people who held to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but were defined by the good news of the gospel. Over the next three decades, evangelicals made terms like born-again commonplace, and evangelists like Billy Graham became household names. By 1976, the country's bicentennial, the movement hit its zenith point. Born-again Christian Jimmy Carter was elected president, and Time Magazine dubbed 1976 the year of the evangelical. While Jimmy Carter was president, a televangelist from Virginia named Jerry Falwell formed a group called the Moral Majority. They raised money to lobby politicians and promoted Christian activism in politics. The Moral Majority eventually grew to over four million members, two million donors, and contributed millions and millions of dollars to politics. They were a force to be reckoned with. President Jimmy Carter and the Moral Majority didn't exactly get along. Most of the policies that the Moral Majority supported, lower taxes, higher defense spending, were not a part of the Democratic president's platform. And when he, even though he was an evangelical, did not fall in line with the Moral Majority, they turned on him. By 1980, the Moral Majority was an early supporter of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan wasn't the Christian candidate. He had been married multiple times, and while governor of California had brought about some of the most liberal abortion laws in the country, 
but his policies matched up with the moral majority. It was reported that the moral majority spent over $10 million in commercials on Southern radio and TV to brand Jimmy Carter as a traitor to the South and a man who was no longer a Christian. After Ronald Reagan's victory, Jerry Falwell claimed that Reagan's success was directly due to the moral majority's actions. In 1984, they again supported Reagan, who once again won the presidency. In 1988, when Ronald Reagan left office, Jerry Falwell dissolved the moral majority, saying, quote, our goal has been achieved. The religious right is solidly in place, and religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. Mission accomplished. Now, here's why that history matters. At the height of its cultural power, evangelicalism became synonymous with a political movement specifically with the Republican politics of Ronald Reagan. Ever since that time, evangelicals have voted overwhelmingly Republican. This last election, 40 years after the year of the evangelical, over 81% of evangelicals voted for Republican Donald Trump, according to the Public Religion Research Institute. 81%. That's insane. And I'm not saying that because of my politics. I'm a registered Republican. But that's crazy for any group of people to vote for any candidate in any race. Winning a group by 20% is considered a landslide. This makes 20 points look crazy. This is a 62% margin. So you might think that evangelicals would be widely happy about Trump winning. Well, yes and no. In fact, the church seems as divided as many other groups in America. We can't just look at the percentages because there's always a story behind those numbers. 81% just seemed to be too big of a number, so I looked into what was behind it. I found that, historically, that major polling organizations split Christianity up into a couple different groups. Catholics, mainline Protestants, white evangelicals, African-American Protestants, and those with no religious identity. Wait, hold on, play that back. Catholics, mainline Protestants, white evangelicals, African-American Protestants, and those with no religious identity. Why in a theological poll are there two racial distinctions? A lot of pollsters and journalists just assume that black Protestants will all vote in the same block. So why split them up? For all intents and purposes, to pollsters and news organizations, an evangelical is a white, suburban, southern Republican. Evangelical has shifted from a theological distinction to a cultural category. And here's why this is such a huge problem. In pollster theology, John Piper and Joel Osteen have more theologically in common than John Piper and any African American in his church. Using evangelical, a theological term, to define a political constituency is so flawed that it can't even accurately describe individual churches or even families. If your church isn't racially homogenous, polls don't know what to do with your theology. If that is an evidence of a systematic racial problem, I, I'm not sure what is. 
And I have to confess, I haven't told you the whole story. Because this racial divide that was really highlighted in our election last year isn't a new problem. It used to be that the South was full of yellow dog Democrats. A yellow dog Democrat was somebody who would always vote for the Democrat, no matter what that person's character or policies were. But now the South isn't full of yellow dog Democrats. The South is full of yellow dog Republicans, and that shift happened at the exact same time that evangelicals were rising in America. The cultural rise of evangelicals happened alongside and in the wake of the civil rights movement when white, democratic Southerners felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. They felt like their presidents, JFK, Lyndon Johnston, and later Jimmy Carter, had abandoned them. The Republican message of states' rights was really attractive to those who still flew Confederate flags. By the time Falwell dissolved the moral majority, the very religious and racially divided South had flipped from a Democratic stalwart to the Republican base. Now, I'm not saying that all Republicans are racist or that the Republican platform is inherently racist because that's patently untrue. Many Republicans and evangelicals loudly denounce racism in both word and action. But we do have to recognize and admit that the evangelical alignment with the Republican Party ran parallel with those of white supremacists. Those uncomfortable alignments didn't start in 2016. They were just exposed again. Race wasn't the only division that was highlighted. Evangelicals publicly judged each other's spiritual health and even their salvation based on their political views. It seemed that salvation was by grace, through faith, with politics. This year we also saw the disturbing disconnect that Christians have created between private and public morality. According to the Public Religion Research Institute, in 2012, 70% of Christians thought a person's private morality affected their public office. For one thing I think we need to dispel, the myth is that a person's private morality has no effect on his ability to run uh, for office or to serve in office. Look, character is what counts, and a person's judgments in his private life spills so over 70% of Christians thought that your private life, your beliefs, really affected the way that you would govern. By 2016, that flipped almost completely. In 2016, 72% of evangelicals said that private morality played no role in a person's efficacy for public office. 72% of people say that your beliefs and your actions, no matter how immoral, really have no bearing on how good of a president, governor, senator, comptroller you would be. I said, look, I might not choose this man to be a Sunday school teacher in my church, but that's not what this election but is about. Sir, being it's the about president, choosing the best leader to uh, reverse the downward spiral of But it's also about electing someone with character and with judgment. He mentioned In 2012, Christians struggled with whether or not they could vote for a virtuous Mormon. Now, we struggle with if someone should be virtuous at all. This last election, some of the loudest voices excusing immorality were Christians. Joining me now is Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. You, you can't be, we're not electing a pastor in chief, we're electing a, a 
commander-in-chief, and we, we can't expect our, our commander-in-chief to have the same qualities as our pastors. And I think most of the rank-and-file evangelicals have figured that out on their own. I think some of the leadership has been slow to catch up with the rank-and-file. I think if you look all through the primary... It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you're in my party and you win, we're good. The people who once made up the moral majority no longer seem that concerned with morality as long as they win a majority of the votes. When you look at all of this, it becomes readily apparent that evangelical as a political term is theologically vacuous, racially divided, and cares more about the kingdoms of earth than the authority of heaven. In other words, it looks nothing like the biblical church. If being an evangelical means dismissing systematic racism and the pain of non-white Christians, if it means the inability of Christians to stand up and call sin, sin, if the greatest hope of an evangelical is to win the White House, then I'm not an evangelical. But that's only one way to define evangelical. The way that we should define evangelical, the way that we should reclaim the term evangelical, is theologically. The solution to the problem is to get back to the fundamentals of the faith and the good hope of the gospel that defined evangelicalism when it started. The word evangelical is a direct transliteration of the Greek word euangelos, which means messengers. Think of Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christians are sent messengers. We are euangelos. Paul expands that idea, calling the church ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. Our primary political call is to be ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. And there is a specific but very broad set of theological beliefs that define evangelicals. One, conversion, that people need to be saved, born again, and have their sins forgiven by being justified by the grace of God. Two, crucicentrism, that is, the centrality of the cross, that all history and faith hinges on the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Three, activism, your faith is not private. The gospel is for all people and the only hope for human redemption. Therefore, Christians are ambassadors sent to give the gospel to those around them. The message of Christ should send us out, should cause us to be active evangelists and social reformers. And number four, Biblicism, that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant work of God and the arbiter of objective truth. Now, with those four things, conversion, the centrality of the cross, activism, and Biblicism, that's purely theological. That's not a political party. It's not divided by race. It's not even American. In that definition, evangelicals are found in every Protestant denomination on every continent of the earth. In fact, you can put lots of Christians going back hundreds of years in that group. 
Evangelical is not a new American thing. It's an old theological set of beliefs. And because evangelical is a theological set of beliefs, it is more powerful and more transcendent than any particular political party. Evangelicals can be Democrats, they can be Republicans, they can be independent, they can be Green Party. And while evangelicals can be found in any party, they won't perfectly fit in any of them. They'll find policies in each party that they disagree with. And that shouldn't surprise us because no party is trying to build the kingdom of God. Let's not let our hope rest in our politics. Let's not look for a candidate to do what only Christ can. Evangelicals should be the most diverse, empathetic, forgiving, and unified group in the United States. People should walk into our churches and see Democrats and Republicans worshiping together, praying with one another. They should see people that they expect to disagree on everything, loving one another. They should walk into our churches and see true racial reconciliation, where the demographics of your city are reflected right there in the pews. That's not where we are right now. We've got a lot of work to do. And by God's grace, we'll get there. But it's going to take time and work to reclaim the banner of evangelical from politics. It's going to take time and effort to reconcile the divisions that exist in the American church. We're all going to have to be diligent to live up to our calling. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take sweat. It will take more empathy than we now show one another. It's going to take listening more than speaking. It's going to take knowing the Bible and holding firmly to the truth that's in it. It will require boldness to live out that truth. It's going to require prayer and the sovereign hand of God. In short, it's going to take the church, by God's providence, living evangelically. Evangelical is such a cultural term that I wouldn't be too upset if we called ourselves something different. If this was like the time after World War II when fundamentalists became distorted, and so those who held to the gospel started calling themselves evangelicals. If that happened again, I wouldn't be upset because it's just a cultural term. The beliefs don't change. It shouldn't surprise us that our culture desperately wants to put us in a particular box to define who we are by cultural terms. But let's not acquiesce to those terms. Our kingdom is not of this earth, and we are ambassadors of Christ first and foremost. If the culture looks at us and marvels at us and is confused and says, why can't we pin you down? Our response should always be, come and see. Come and see the one who holds our hope. Come and see the one who drives us towards social reform and activism in his name to his glory. Come and see. If we're talking about evangelical, the tag doesn't mean so much. But if we're talking about the name of Christ, the name means everything.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.